Well, good morning. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, Reconciliation, a Sinner's Need. And as you turn there, as always, I want to ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 1, our text begins in verse 21, but I'm going to back up and begin reading in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. You may be seated. For several years, my mom worked at a prison just south of Visalia, California. This facility is more well-known for its residents than being a resident. The crimes committed by those within it have spanned anything from simple drug possession, not that that's simple, all the way to homicides and multiple homicides at that. Despite their status, some of its more violent offenders were periodically eligible for parole, as we know is possible in our system. Sitting before a board of individuals who would decide their future, it's always interesting to see what people would say and how some of these men would present themselves. One man always made sure to use whatever opportunity he was given and whatever opportunity was available to him to appeal for his release. His reasons were many, because he'd used just as many reasons to appeal for his release as well, to appeal before whichever individual was present, telling them that it was just and right to release him. In one instance early on, the same man appeared before a board, before a group of individuals, to appeal for early release by just a couple of years. But this parole board denied his appeal, because just two weeks prior, he had attempted and failed at an escape from that prison. 
over the course of his 70 years in incarceration, 70 years, and he died at age 83, he never failed to ask for release, and each time it was denied. He never made the connection between what his words said and what his words professed of a personal transformation and the reality that his behavior never backed up that profession. Another man sitting before a parole board in 1982, one of those inmates, would tell those same individuals, the parole board, that he was convinced that the man he murdered, if he were alive today, would indeed advocate for his release. He even states specifically, no matter how horrible the crime, I'm sure this man would say he deserved fair and equal treatment. Over the course of this man's 53 years in prison, his parole was denied 15 times. And then on the 16th time, the parole board agreed to release him finally. But that was later revoked by somebody else higher up. In the same way, this man's actions didn't match his words. Both these men had something in common. Neither seemed to understand the implications of legitimate, genuine reconciliation. First, if one is not repentant, they don't often understand the depravity of their own hearts. And there was a lack of repentance in either one of these men. Neither one ever actually apologized or acknowledge how horrific their crimes were. Additionally, reconciliation indicates change. It's a change in relationship that is precipitated by a change in character. It was one thing for these men to say they had been transformed, but in neither case did their behavior match that transformation they professed. Their activities, actions, and attitudes never confirmed their words. Most importantly, though, genuine reconciliation can only occur by the work of Christ. The first and greatest need of man is reconciliation, to be reconciled with God. And only when that happens can a person be reconciled with others. Reconciliation begins by being reconciled to God, which only occurs by the work of Christ. We've been seeing that in our text in Colossians 1, 18 through 20, and it continues today. This morning, I want to look at three points about reconciliation. The first I want you to note is the essentiality of reconciliation. There in verse 21, Paul explains the need for reconciliation. As he says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Because of who people are, reconciliation is the greatest need of those people. By pointing to the character of people, this verse in our text invalidates that any person is an independent, self-sufficient being. Instead, every person is corrupt, not merely separated from God, but hostile towards God. And were it not for the work of Christ, the enmity between both men and God would be a permanent, ongoing state. Who people are puts them in conflict with God, and any person's relationship with him will always be in discord without the intervention of Christ. 
Humans are not self-sufficient, but their eternal life is wholly dependent on someone else. The Apostle Paul explains this point in his typical form. He has a habit of structuring his writings in the same way in every letter by first offering a discourse on theology proper, and then he follows that up with a discussion of theology in practice. If you pay attention to his writings, you will notice they are frequently formed in this way. He will begin with this deep theological treaty and deep explanation of concepts that are profound. In one sense, you could say he stuns the reader with the complexities of the Christian faith. But he never leaves readers asking, so what? He always uncomplicates everything that he's just said. And he makes things simple and understandable by calling attention to their relevance in the Christian life. Uniting doctrine with duty. Paul has explained in the previous verse, in verse 20, verses 18 through 20, and even prior, who Christ is. He highlights Christ's position over all things, over creation and the church, and highlights his role as sustaining all things and bringing reconciliation to all things. And now he directs our attention to the importance of that. He now tells you and I why we should care about who Christ is. In verses 15 through 20, we have this view from this clouds, this overarching perspective of Christ over creation. The firstborn of the living, the firstborn of the dead, he is described. We see his ability to both sustain and reconcile. But then with this phrase in verse 21, he begins, and you, to begin the verse. And with that phrase, Paul brings us from way up here to focus our view to down here. He makes it more personal, essentially saying Christ is a great reconciler, and you need to be reconciled. He reasons that all people need to be reconciled based on who they are, describing them as alienated and hostile in mind. This emphasis on the mind is not surprising, as it appears in plenty of Paul's writings. We'll see it in two chapters from now in Colossians 3.1, when he tells them to set their mind on Christ. Most of us know Romans 12.2, when he writes, Do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What goes into your mind comes out in your life. The reason that so many of us look like the world and less like Christ is because we fill our minds with more of the world than we do with Christ. Even the Greek culture of Paul's day understood and recognized that the trajectory of one's life followed the trajectory of one's mind. And no, this is not a positive thinking seminar. I'm not telling you to think positive and have these visualizations of great things and that will happen. That's a secular mentality. And more than that, it's quite the opposite of what I'm trying to say. Because that teaching, that positive thinking, simply says to fill our minds with more of ourselves. When our thoughts are nothing but high and lofty thoughts of ourselves... We have no room for high and lofty thoughts of Christ. Paul's charge against the Colossians then is a serious one. Because he's not only saying that the Colossians have set their minds 
against Christ and against God. He's saying that they've set their entire lives against him. He begins by saying they were alienated. That term often speaks to foreigners or about foreigners, as though God has some charge over a land, but their passports are for a different nation, and so they're unable to reach him. They exist separated from God, separated by a bunch of barriers, physical barriers that are present, preventing them from having a relationship. As a verb, this word is used only two other times in the entire New Testament, and both times are in Ephesians. The first is in Ephesians chapter 2, and at that point, verses 12 and 13 describe the relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews and says how they have been united by the work of Christ. But more relevant to us is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Beginning in verse 17, Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Once again, Paul makes a connection between mind and their alienation from God. For the Ephesians, Paul accuses them of hard-heartedness that has led to this ignorance, and thus they've been alienated from God. For the Colossians, though, their alienation is not due to ignorance. It is a purposeful rejection of him, and it's seen in the form of the hostility. Literally, it means they are hateful towards God. They're not indifferent but they have this intentional attitude towards him. They hate God and they hate his holy statutes. And so internally they are rebelling against him. The people Paul describes here in this text are set against God. The mind being part of God's image is one that should reflect God's goodness. But of course it's been corrupted by our sinfulness. And so, like the unbelievers of 2 Corinthians 4, 4, their minds become blind to the gospel. As such, they've purged their minds of all thoughts of God. And because a person's life follows his mind, as I stated earlier, the consequences of purging their minds of God is that they become doers of evil deeds rather than doers of the words, as it says in our verse 21. You need to notice something very important about this text, though. Who is Paul describing? He's writing to the Colossians, but he's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about those who have not been reconciled. He's exposing the character, then, of anyone who has never chosen to trust and follow Christ. To be alienated and hostile towards God. To be steeped in evil deeds, those are troubling words. Because ultimately, they can and have described any single one of us in this room. This verse is not reserved for our erring neighbors, our straying friends, or our troublesome family. With these words, Paul has captured a description of you and I, telling us who we were before we came to Christ. To the Ephesians, he says it this way, that they carry out the desires of the body and mind, that they live in the passions of their flesh. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, he refers to some as drunkards and idolaters and thieves and adulterers. And to Romans, he says they are slaves to sin. Using these God-given words, Paul is simply describing each one of us in a fallen state. For those of us who have indeed trusted the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross, this verse tells us who we once were and also explains with us the constant battles we still have with the flesh. But for those who may be here who haven't trusted in that work, this is who you still are. And if you don't know the difference, uncertain of whether you've trusted in Christ, and even if you do, now's a perfect time for self-examination. Are we more critical of others' hearts' attitudes rather than convicted by our own heart attitudes? Are we more concerned about what others think about us rather than what God knows about us? Then perhaps we need to consider, are we alienated from God? The consequences of existing in this state, in a state of being unreconciled, are severe because it brings about the wrath of God. So severe is this wrath of God that Jeremiah says it quakes the earth and no person can endure it. But as devastating as that is, Paul doesn't leave it there. This verse may paint a horrific picture of who people are. It may call our attention to our basic need for reconciliation by the labor of Christ. But the next verse gives hope showing that reconciliation is indeed possible. And so I want you to note, second, the effect of reconciliation in verse 22. Continuing the reading, it says, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. While the activities of man make reconciliation impossible, The actions of Christ make reconciliation possible. What men cannot do, Christ is able to do. Elevated by by the desperation of the previous verse, I want you to hear the hope that comes in this verse. Paul has just issued this severe indictment against all people who are in an unbelieving state. Notice how Paul never says anything here that he wouldn't say about himself. Indeed, he will say at some points, I am the worst of all sinners. But even more important, despite the harsh assessment, he brings us to this point to show us that reconciliation with God is indeed possible. No longer does any person need to continue existing with such hostility and animosity in their lives because Christ has made it possible. Instead, They can be and have been reconciled with God. That term reconcile indicates a complete change. A complete transformation has taken place. The same word or concept is conveyed in Romans 5.10. When Paul writes, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Bringing about that concept of reconciliation again, the word here 
in Romans is very similar to the one in Colossians. But Paul does something different in the Greek text in Colossians. He makes it a compound word. And we're not going to get into all the details, but basically by doing that, what he has done is just increase the intensity of that word to mean that it is a thorough, complete, absolute, total transformation. Going from a hatred for God to a love for God. It's a complete turnaround. The change is a change in our relationship with God. More importantly, it's a restoration of the relationship, restoring that wonderful, intimate fellowship that was lost at the fall. The same word or similar word is further used in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Beginning in the well-known verse of 517, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Note the change. Then it says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled with God. Having been reconciled himself, Paul now sees his own ministry as a ministry of reconciliation, pleading with people to be reconciled with God. To understand the example that is placed before us in this text, reconciliation causes us to desire reconciliation for other people. This is not an experience we have on our own, but it causes us to go out and generate or share the gospel in hopes that others will have the same experience as well. What is it that makes this reconciliation possible? What changes had to take place in order for reconciliation to be possible? Our text says that by Christ's work, verse 20, it says, by his blood, and here it says, by his body, tells us that those who trust in him and in that work are presented then holy and blameless and above reproach. There's a change in relationship because there's a change in man's status. Instead of being alienated and hostile towards God, the one who believes has now become holy and blameless and above reproach. If we remember the Old Testament sacrifices that the Lord required, he required a sacrifice that was unblemished. It was spotless. There could not be the slightest imperfection on an animal used for sacrifice. Peter writes, describing of Christ, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ sacrificed as a spotless, unblemished lamb of God is what allows us to be reconciled to God by being found holy and blameless and spotless ourselves in the same way that Christ was. That is to say that we have been found blameless and innocent, as he would use 
those terms with the Philippians. That means that no formal charges can ever be held against us in a court of law. Because we now stand before him without fault, without any stain on our record. But then this third phrase goes deeper. It says, above reproach. It's not just that no charges can be held against us, but this word means that no charge can even be brought against us. Nobody can even make an accusation. So holy and blameless is the one in Christ that there is not a single allegation or complaint that can be made against them. Those who have not been reconciled to our Lord not only stand condemned before him, but they stand ready to receive the wrath of God that we just discussed. But Christ's reconciliation, brought in the form of his blood and the body to appease that wrath. Just moments ago, we read Romans 5.10, but I didn't read to you the prior verse, which says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, as seen in Colossians 1.20 last week, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It is by reconciliation that the wrath of God is appeased. Instead, our text in Colossians says that Christ presents those who have been reconciled before him again, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Terms that we need to remember. Hostile and alienated. Our crime is rebellion against God and his holiness. Standing before him as he is the judge, we have nothing but hatred for him, animosity, antagonism towards this very man who is about to pronounce judgment on us and bring down the full weight of his authority and wrath. But then Christ steps in. And instead of presenting our case, Christ presents us in light of his work. And the relationship between us and God changes. Instead of being enemies with God, which brings down the weight of his decision, we are reconciled and become friends with the very one we used to hate. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I want you to note third, the expectations of reconciliation in verse 23. The expectations of reconciliation noted by the words, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. William Hendrickson writes, divine preservation always presupposes human perseverance. While Christ's work is indeed sufficient, this verse reminds us of the human element involved, one in which a person labors to persevere in faith. And in doing so, that person trusts that God will preserve the one who perseveres. That word, if, that begins this statement, it reminds us that there's a difference between true faith, genuine faith, and false faith. Genuine faith will always endure. It will always persevere, while false faith will always fall. This is not a call to earn salvation or work for our salvation, but rather to prove 
our salvation. To prove our reconciliation, we show that we are committed to the faith. Notice that this is a proof test, to continue in the faith. There's a definite article in our text there. It says, the faith. That word, the, indicates that there is only but one faith. Paul doesn't tell them to continue in a faith or any faith. He says, the faith. There can only be one. This is where doctrine matters, because this faith is defined by God and not man. It is defined by him because he alone is truth. And he alone can set forth what is required for reconciliation, which is faith in the work of Christ. Anything less than God's truth isn't truth. Anything less than God's gospel isn't the gospel. Therefore, Paul's words are here to continue, or tell us to continue in the one true faith. The faith that God has established from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to completion. And then we're given these three characteristics of the one who continues in the faith. That person is one who is stable, steadfast, and not shifting from the gospel. I read those words and can't help but think of the tree pictured in Psalm chapter 1. There, the psalmist compares a man who delights in God's law as a tree that is planted next to a stream. And that tree yields fruit in all seasons, and it never withers, is what the text says. Such a tree must be firmly grounded, extending its roots so deep that this tree is not washed away by the running water. And more importantly, it is so grounded that even as shorelines may erode, that tree is still planted in fact, so strong and so t- stable is that tree that it is like a house with a firm foundation that when a tornado comes along, that tree still stands. Again, it is important to note that this is not a works-based salvation. Paul is not saying one earns re- reconciliation by remaining stable and steadfast. That reconciliation already took place by the work of Christ. And according to his words in Romans, it takes nothing but a belief in the sufficiency of that work to find reconciliation. He's also not writing to say that one can lose their salvation. Instead, the one who is stable is indicative of one like the seeds that have been grown, thrown on the rocky ground. They take root for a while, but because the roots don't go very deep, they end up withering and dying. This is like a person who may serve for a while, but eventually turns the other way. Turning their backs on God, they were never true believers to begin with. We know that humans battle with the flesh. Sometimes we falter at a moment's notice. But for a genuine believer, such a falter is temporary. Because that believer is always convicted and returns to the Lord in a haste of repentance and remission. In this case, the Lord is slow to anger. As we read this morning, the psalmist pictures this with Israel in Psalm chapter 78. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. Despite their unfaithfulness to the Lord, he was always compassionate. 
He always provided a way or continued to provide a way for reconciliation with atonement for their iniquity, it says. In the same way, those who falter will find the Lord's arms open wide to receive them. In our text, this is no doubt a very difficult time for the Colossians. They are being faced with false teachings, and some of them may be at the point of doubting and uncertain of where they stand with Christ. They may not even be sure are they holding to the faith in light of this false teaching. Paul's call here is not unreasonable. He's simply stating that calling upon them to hold steady in the faith. How do they know they are believers? By simply following what they already knew to be true. He issues the same call to the Corinthians. Towards the end of the book, in chapter 15, the very last verse of that chapter, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's not telling them to have faith in their work to bring them to the Lord but to have faith in Christ's work to bring them to the Lord. Their test of their faith is not their work for the Lord, but the Lord's work for them. This is the type of faith that I would want. I don't want a faith in which God leaves me by myself to try to persevere. I want a faith where I know God is always at work through his spirit in me. And that's what he's calling on. Genuine reconciliation is demonstrated by genuine action. Few understand reconciliation as much as Paul. In contrast to those men in prison that I began with and talked about earlier, Paul recognized what it was that Christ had done for him. And finally, what he does is he acknowledges his need for Christ. Finally responding, he turns to the only one who can provide reconciliation. Responding to the call of Christ when Christ called him by name on the road to Damascus. And how do we know that Paul understood that? Because he responded to it. He closes out our set of verses here saying he has become a slave to the gospel. His reconciliation is made evident by his service to God through a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is needed by every individual without it. People exist alienated and hostile towards God. And yet it is made possible by the work of Christ. And through what he provides, instead of being hostile and alienated, we can be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. Such a dramatic change initiates a response. It causes people to persevere. C.F.D. Mole explains it this way. Christ does for us what we could not do for ourselves, but we must do for our part what he will not do for us. Our greatest need was met by Christ's greatest act. Let's pray. Father God, indeed you are the great reconciler providing the possibility for any of us to be called holy and blameless and above reproach by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we know that's who you are. 
that you are holy, that you are blameless, that you are above reproach, and in the same way that is the character of your son. As such, he is made for the perfect sacrifice. The only one who could be the perfect sacrifice and atone for our iniquities, Lord. And so, Father, we come before you knowing, indeed, that's who we once were, hostile and alienated. But now we can rejoice because you've given us this possibility to also be unblemished before you, Lord. What a marvelous act this is. What a wondrous work this is. Something that we could never do our own. And yet you provided a way, Lord. Father, I pray that we wouldn't just be convicted by our sin, but we would be convinced of the hope that brings. That it would draw us closer into your presence. That we would desire to have a ministry of reconciliation ourselves because of the reconciliation you offer to us, Lord. And so, Father, we commit this to you, grateful for who you are and what you've done. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.